few weeks, Acts 2 deals with the establishment of Christ's church through the power and purposeful work of the Holy Spirit. The truth is that we've seen this today, even in, in America, very much. Uh, it's something I would say it's very prevalent. But it's all throughout much of the Western world. The church has lost its, its vibrancy. It's, it, in its complacency and in its comfort, it's become complacent. The truth is, is that the power of the Holy Spirit is often not seen and given its rightful place within Christ's church. Yesterday I was preparing for my, my sermon and I was actually out, uh, Trent was playing baseball. And so uh, one of the things I can do, just because those games can be pretty long, they, um, they, 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 it's not like Little League anymore where they... they uh, they stop the games at like an hour and 50 minutes. And so you've got a bunch of 13 to 15-year-olds who can play baseball, but those games take two and a half, three, sometimes three and a half hours. It's a long time. And, uh, and so I find that between innings and different things that I can actually just go, and it's actually been a good time for me to kind of get away from what's going on at the game and go down uh, the baseline and sit out in the outfield and just think and kind of work on a sermon. But yesterday, I had forgotten my lawn chair. And so... I was sitting up in the bleachers, and I pulled out this notepad, and, you know, it, it looks goofy because you're sitting in this, you know, up in the bleachers, and I've got this notepad, and I'm just kind of writing down some thoughts that I, I wanted to add, and this lady looks at me, and she says, oh, what are you, what are you doing? And, uh, and I said, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm getting some work done. And I, I knew that for me, it was, it was one of those things where we're in this group, if it's an opportunity to share the gospel with her, wonderful, if it's not, okay, it's no problem. And so... She looks and she says, uh, she said, well, you know, she goes, uh, she's looking at my handwriting and she said, oh, you know, people don't usually write in cursive anymore. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm old enough, I guess, to still write in cursive. I don't know. Um, but as I'm, I'm writing and so there was another lady sitting and she goes, so what, what are you doing? What are you working on? And I said, well, I just, I have some thoughts. And I, I know that this question is often the conversation killer for me because as soon as they find out, they're like, uh, get away. And, and so I said, well, uh, I actually, I, I pastor, um, uh, um, and, and so I'm actually just jotting down some notes for tomorrow that just kind of thoughts that came to mind. And so literally both in unison go, oh, that's interesting, and never said another word. No joke. <laughs> never said another word. And what it got to me thinking about was the truth is, is that I wonder if that would be true if the church was walking in the power of the Spirit the way that God intended, where people were actually responding to the gospel of Christ and seeing the church as a place of, of life, a place of, um, of uh, conviction, but a place that was of love and of joy and of hope, not just a place in their eyes of condemnation. It was interesting because it was one of those things that for me, it just set me back for a moment because I, I, I laugh sometimes knowing that that's just going to be the way it goes. And I've tried everything to creatively say, this is what I'm doing, right? And so often, um, if I'm in a coffee house or someplace else, if somebody asks, I'll try to draw them in a little bit differently. And that was in direct contrast to the day before in a coffee shop where somebody looked and they actually wanted to know what I was doing and... Oh, that's neat. That's fascinating. And so the responses are different, right? 
But the truth is, I wonder what those responses would really be like if the church was actually a place where people saw the Holy Spirit at work consistently. Um, Many of our corporate gatherings, because they lack that vibrancy, the truth is, is that rather than pointing to the glory of Christ, the focus has been on trying to appeal to the flesh. And we see that. We see churches that are trying to appeal to the flesh. They're trying to entertain people. And the reason is that once that entertainment goes away, so goes the church. And what ends up happening is is that because Christ is not the center of that church, or at least in terms of the, the reason for why people are coming, as soon as that entertainment goes away, so do the people, right? I was reading an article um, from Huff Post, which was speaking about the Kentucky Baptist Convention. This is a secular paper writing about the gimmicks of pastors. Very interesting. And so they actually looked at the six most ridiculous gimmicks that pastors try to use to get people through the door. I thought it was fascinating. I'm like, this is what the world sees. This is helpful. It's discouraging, but it's helpful, right? And they, he speaks here of the Kentucky Baptist Convention who hosted a Second Amendment celebration during which churches served steak and gave away guns as door prizes. <laughs> no joke. This was two years ago. The strategy, get this, was called affinity evangelism because it used a common interest to attract potential converts and turn them into a community. And the pastor who developed the strategy said, you have to know the hook that will attract people, and hunting is huge in Kentucky. So we get in there and burp and scratch and talk about the right to bear arms and that stuff. Wow, right? That's an interesting way of trying to draw people to Christ's church. But it's not the way that Christ has called us to do that. See, the commonality is to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God desires to grow the church in the same manner that he established the church through the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the gathering of believers is to be a place where the truth of Christ is confirmed and the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit is clearly known. It's to be a place where the truth is confirmed and the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit is clearly known. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Let's go ahead and stand together as we read that together. And God lays out His plan for the gathering, for the gathering of believers. And this is what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, it's our prayer this morning that we might be a church that is committed to the principles that you've laid out in your word for your gathering. We pray that we would be a church where your spirit is constantly present. 
that your spirit is at work in our lives, in each of our lives. Father, where the world might take note and not see us, but see your glory. Father, may it be true of us that we would be a glory-filled church that exists for the purpose of revealing your glory. Father, if there's things within us this morning where our hearts are heavy or burdened, Lord, may we just put those at your feet. Father, the sin that's in our heart that is just preventing us from hearing what you have for us, may we confess that to you right now and lay it at your feet. Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. May we see with your eyes, may we hear with your ears. Father, may you move me out of the way. And may it be you, God, who brings your word forth in strength and in power. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Gathering together according to God's design grows Christ's church through the Holy Spirit's presence and demonstrates the blessing of His promised glory. Gathering together according to God's design grows Christ's church through the Holy Spirit's presence and demonstrates the blessing of His promised glory. The gathering of believers is truly to reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, allow the body of Christ to experience the blessing of His glory and the blessing of His promised glory. As we saw last week, the Apostle Peter in verse 38 calls the Jews to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 goes on and it says this, it says, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So if you think about that for a moment, the church is now 3,120 strong. There were 120 that on the day of Pentecost came forward, there are now 3,000 that come together and they've responded to the message of Jesus Christ. They've responded to the gospel. Now notice when they confess and they've repented of of sin and they've confessed Christ as Lord, it doesn't stop there. They're given the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives them the heart of Christ. They're given the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives them the heart of Christ. A love for God and a love for others. Instantly. It doesn't mean that God automatically says, hey, you're going to love everybody. It does mean that all of a sudden what he does is he turns our hearts towards him through the power of the Spirit, and then he turns our hearts towards others. You can't have one without the other. In fact, to love apart from God is actually a love that is a fleshly love. It's not an agape or godly love. To love God apart from people is to misunderstand the very thing at work within God. And God has said, listen, you're not my disciples if you hate my people. 
So God has called us to love Him and to love others. And the moment that believers receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, He's called us to walk in that love because He has given us His heart through the Spirit. So believers then are continuing to gather together to grow in Christ and reflect His glory to others. And so in verse 42 it says, it gives us this picture of the first corporate gathering of believers. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is a pretty simple approach, is it not? They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this word devoted in Greek is the word proskaterio. And this word actually means to persist obstinately, to, to not let go, or to persist stubbornly. That's really what it means. It's more than just a devotion. It's more than just a commitment. It is that at all means, I am committed and connected at all cost. It means that I press through the good and I press through the bad. It means that not only am I committed to it, but it means that it has priority in my life. And so what they're talking about in this passage is that there's a a devotion, a commitment to the gathering of believers. Now, 60 years ago, I would say that church attendance was often something that was viewed with legalistic eyes. Your church attendance was equated with your spiritual life. And so the church reacted and they went to the other extreme where church attendance is almost, well, I don't know that, you know, it's nice if I get there, but if I don't, it doesn't really matter. The truth is, is that we're instructed here to persist obstinately or to persist in this stubborn way, to make it a priority, to put it in our lives Because what's being drawn out in this passage is that we need the corporate gathering. We need the gathering, one, to reveal God's glory, but we need the gathering to grow as well. And the gathering of believers is essential to our spiritual growth. I mean, how many times do we hear in our culture, specifically in our Christian culture, I like Jesus, but I really don't need a church. God never said I had to go to church to be a believer in Him. Well, that statement's true, but you're missing the rest of it. God didn't say that you had to go to church to be a believer in Him. What He did say is if you're a believer in Him, that it's really important that you be a part of a gathering. And we need to understand that. We need to see that the gathering is so important in our life that we are to persist obstinately to be a part of it. The underground church in China requires people to come in secret. Many of them meet in back rooms where they're dimly lit And in order to get to the gatherings, they have to hide behind cars to go. They have to shut the buildings and sing quietly in whispered and whispered tone. But they're there. Because they see the need for one another to be built up with one another. And they persist obstinately. In our comfort, 
the truth is, is that the gathering often becomes just another thing that we, we place in our life. And as with any regular event in our life, often we look at it as something that can be skipped because we'll pick it up the next week. It doesn't mean that we, we can't miss. That's not what is being stated here. What it's saying, though, is, is that it needs to have a level of priority in our life that is moved towards the top, not towards the bottom. And it needs to be something that, at cost, we fight for, that we fight to be a part of. Friday night, I was at the, the Windsor High football game. I was talking with a friend who's a, a coach there at Windsor High School, and I was asking uh, Trent's hardest to play baseball this year at, at Windsor High, and so we were talking about the baseball team. And I said, what are they doing you know, right now? Are they doing fall ball? And he goes, yeah, they're, they're doing fall ball, and they have uh, Wednesdays that they're practicing on, and Sundays right now are when they're doing their games. And he stops, and he looks at me, and he goes, oh, you guys can't do Sundays. <laughs> right. Right. And the truth is, is that there was a knowledge to see that there's a persisting obstinately in protecting that time to be with the body of Christ. That at the end of the day, this is what is eternal. This is what is eternal. So the gathering of believers is not to be taken lightly. In fact, the commitment to the corporate gathering was essential to their spiritual growth. And this commitment to the gathering was a direct response to Christ's saving work and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because of what Christ had done and because of the ongoing work of the Spirit, they desired to be together. They desired to partner together. So what we see here in this beginning part of the passage in verse 42 are four marks of a Christ-centered gathering. Four marks of a Christ-centered gathering. The first, it says here, and they devoted themselves, they persisted obstinately, they persisted stubbornly in the apostles' teaching. They made it a priority. It wasn't an afterthought, it was the teaching of the apostles. This wasn't a, 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 a message that was just a, a, a singular thing that drew them out with a good life principle. They persisted obstinately in the teaching of God, in the doctrine of God. This word teaching, apostles' teaching, literally refers to doctrine. They were focused on sound doctrine. They wanted to know what the Word of God actually had to say. I remember watching on ABC a few years back a, an interview with Joel Osteen. The reporter looked at him and said, this is a book about God, right? And he said, yes. And he said, this is a book about spiritual principles from the Bible, right? Right. Well then, how come this book has nothing more to offer than what the world has to offer? Reporter on ABC said it to him right there. Wow. Right? Why? Because the teaching has moved away from the Word. See, at the heart, at the center of what we come together in our gatherings is the Word of God. And apart from the Word of God, we don't have a whole lot of other knowledge to give each other. It's simply just experience that we have in this life. Listen, you don't want to hear what I think. 
on a Sunday morning, you don't want to know what I think. And you certainly don't want to hear it. Because you know why? It doesn't matter. What's important is God's word. And it's what God thinks. And so they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to the doctrine, to the word of God. That's what they were committed to. When a church moves away from the word of God, it will move away from Christ as the means of salvation. We see this happening all over. Churches that are no longer claiming the authority and inerrancy of Scripture are one generation away from total liberalism in theology, meaning a total rejection of Jesus as the lone way, as the only way. The second mark, verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to fellowship. It's a partnership with other believers. This word fellowship is the word koinonia, and it literally means partnership. It refers to a close mutual relationship and involvement between people. They were committed to partnering with others who are other believers in faith. It wasn't just, hey, I came together and I showed up together at the gathering, but rather it was a commitment to one another. It was a commitment that we each shared with each other. It was a commitment to partner together. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do not neglect the gathering. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What he's saying there is we ought to be increasing in our intensity for the partnering relationship with one another. We need not neglect that time. We need not neglect the gathering. See, partnering with other believers is essential. We know from Ephesians that part of the way that we grow is by having people speak the truth in love to us. One of the reasons that we're told that the wounds of a righteous friend can be trusted is because often when somebody speaks the truth to us, we don't like it. And you know what we do? We deflect it. We say that person's being harsh, they're being mean. Listen, when we have sin in our life that we need to see, we're never going to be told that we have sin in our life. We're never going to like being told that we have sin in our life that we don't see. It means that we have to trust those who are around us who are walking in Christ that are saying to us, There's a problem. And in our humility, we respond by either saying, you know what, we're going to be humble in this and we're going to say, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to walk with you in this. Or we let our pride rise up and say, listen, you're just mean-spirited and you're not being, you're you're not approaching me the way that I want to be approached. Listen, love cares more about the individual than it does about the relationship. Love cares more about the individual than it does about the relationship. And that means that when we partner together, we have to love the individual and each other well, which means that we encourage, but we also rebuke when needed. 
And so when we are committed to the fellowship, we are committed to partnering together, not just partnering in the encouraging words all the time, but partnering in the truthful words that will lead to life in Christ. Stephen Cole puts it this way, he says, too often Christians get together and spend the whole time talking about news, weather, and sports. It's not wrong to talk about these things, but at some point the conversation needs to move to a deeper level. If the Lord and His salvation are at the center of my life and of your life, when we get together, we will talk about Him. If we don't, it may reveal that He doesn't have the proper place in our lives. The third mark is communion or worship through remembrance of Christ's work on the cross. Worship through the remembrance of Christ's work on the cross. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. In a corporate context, this would have been dealing with the idea of communion, of coming together to remember the work of Jesus on the cross. But we can also do that together and come together, and not having taken the communion ordinance, we can still focus on the work of the cross. The idea here is that there was a gospel-centered focus, a focus of Jesus' work on the cross that was regularly taking place in their gathering. The point was is that we were to be together and around our gathering there was a knowledge and understanding as well as a continued speaking of the work of the gospel. It's one of the reasons that when we're together we speak of the gospel. And it's why it's so important that we recognize that the gospel is not just an event that occurs the day that somebody repents and believes on Jesus Christ but that it is the ongoing work of Jesus sanctifying us And it's the future work of standing with Jesus in his glory when he returns. The fourth mark was prayer, both corporate and individual. In verse 42, it said they devoted themselves to the prayers. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.1 says this, and I want to encourage you to write this passage down. 1 Timothy 2.1. And it simply is this. It says here, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then Paul goes on and he says, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The idea there is we are to bring our supplications, we're to pray, we're to intercede on behalf of one another. This is what we're committed to. When we come together as a corporate gathering, prayer is an essential part of what we do. And that prayer is not just left in the benediction, or it's not just left in the offering, it's not just left in a time of reflection, but it is left together when we stand together with one another as we leave this building and as we go out and we look at one another and we pray for one another. It's also the part of acknowledging and seeing where one another has needs and beginning to pray for one another as fit. But there's another part of prayer that's important in a corporate setting. See, often when we sing together that song, Refiner's Fire, we're actually 
proclaiming corporately and declaring corporately the work of Christ. But more than that, we are asking God to do a work in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, he says, Why do Christians sing when they are together? The reason is quite simply because in singing together, it's possible for them to speak and pray the same word at the same time. We pray corporately together. When we sing, part of why we sing, not only do we declare the doctrine, as doctrine teach and embed within our heart, but we also pray together as we sing together. What we asked God to do just a few minutes ago was to bring that refiner's fire into our life. We ask for that refiner's fire to be present in our life. And then we need to be able to have eyes to see that when God is bringing that refiner's fire, how are we responding? Because I would venture to say that many of us, we face those trials, we hit those trials, and all of a sudden we go, where's that coming from? The Lord goes, wait a second, you just asked me for it. I mean, in all honesty. I remember... September of 2014, one of the things that I began praying in my own personal life was for God to give me a new sense and understanding of His glory. A new sense and understanding of His glory. Now, the events that occurred over the next year and a half that dealt with the different heart surgeries that I underwent and the different things, there were all kinds of reasons for that. But I can remember lying in bed a year later in July of 2015 in the hospital, and just crying out to the Lord, what are you doing? God, why are you allowing this? And I remember in those moments that God brought me to a passage of Scripture and simply reminded me of the prayer that I had prayed. Give me an understanding of your glory, a glory that will suffice and is sufficient for all things. And I remember in that moment, the peace of the Lord that was overwhelming of, listen, the very thing you're prayed for is the very thing I'm continuing to do. I'm showing you my glory. We need to realize that when we pray to the Lord, we need to be actively looking and seeking for how he's responding. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see. And so what we see here is they've laid out these these four areas, these four marks of a Christ-centered church, but then we begin to see the outworking of that. And so we see the Holy Spirit's presence in this gathering. And so the Holy Spirit's presence is witnessed through a few different things here. The first is in verse 43 where it says, "...and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles." Truth is, it's witnessed through an awe-full, F-U-L-L, confirmation of God's Word. An awe-full confirmation of God's Word. The idea here is that when we are together within the gathering, we see God at work. The Spirit is at work. There's things that we understand differently when we're together. Ephesians 3.18 actually reveals that to us, that we might learn those things together as the saints. There's a power in it in being together. There's a power in seeing how God opens and responds to His Word in others' lives, and we see His Word confirmed, and we stand in awe of it. We watch lives be changed and transformed 
I mean, think about that for a moment. How many times in your own life have you stood in awe of God and said, God, I never would have thought that you would have dealt with that in my life the way you did, but you did. Now, if you're in awe, imagine what others are seeing. The point is, is that when we're together, the Holy Spirit is confirming his word. And the Holy Spirit's presence is witnessed as God's word is confirmed in our lives and in the lives of others. Now, in those days, the apostles were doing signs and wonders, and they were using those signs and wonders of ways of confirming the Word of God, a visible way of confirming the Word of God. But today, we still have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that is living and active and amongst us, who desires to confirm His Word, and He does within the body of Christ. The question is, Are we slowing down enough to stand in awe of God? I was reading a recent study that said that more often that there's a direct correlation between depression and the number of hours and minutes that are actually looked at looking at your phone. That the more you look at a phone, an eye tablet, or computer, the correlation is depression actually increases. I wonder, too, sometimes if that is actually tied to the fact that we are so ingrained here that we actually miss the glory of God when we're looking up. We never stop long enough to see what God is doing. We never stop to see if God is actually confirming His Word or not. The second way that the Holy Spirit's presence is witnessed is through the brotherly sacrificial love for believers. Brotherly sacrificial love for believers. William Barclay says this, he says, A real Christian cannot bear to have too much when others have too little. I think it's profound. We drive our American culture and our American ideal into this. Even the statement of that, for some of us right now, it stirs within us of, well, God didn't say everything. But the point here is this, is that verse 44 through 45 says something unique. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See, what happens in this is often we go, well, I kind of like this, and the fact that I don't want to give it up, you know, I don't feel like I should have to do that. Well, the truth is, is this is that our focus is still different. The point here is that they saw others and their needs as more important. When we're still looking at ours, trying to cling to what we have, we're still putting ourselves ahead of them. That rubs some of us the wrong way. But the truth is, is that when we see a need, we're supposed to meet that need. 1 John 3 says something really unique, and I want to encourage you to write this passage down, 1 John 3, verse 17 and 18. And this is what it says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's a powerful verse. 
It doesn't mean that we have to be that to every single person. What it's specifically talking about is needs within the church, that God is saying here that we are to come alongside. Now, he's also given some stipulations to that. If a person is unwilling to work, the word says he shall not eat. But the other part of that is that if we see people in need, if we see them and there is an actual need there, then we are to come around them as the body of Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. Because the Spirit is at work to convict our hearts. The Spirit is at work for us to lay down our selfish desire to preserve ourselves and start working in ministering to others. One of the interesting things I found was as I looked at this passage in commentaries, depending on what year the commentary was, it depended on what political system they tried to attach this to. And what I mean by that is, is that the commentaries between the 40s and the 80s all spoke of communism. And they were all declaring, this is not what it's talking about as communism. And they kept saying, you don't have to give up everything. It was driving me nuts. We don't get the freedom to tell that to each other. If God calls us to give up everything, he's called us to give up everything. People do it every day to go to the mission field, do they not? We don't get the freedom to pacify somebody's conviction from the Spirit. If the Spirit is calling us to lay it all down for Christ, we lay it all down for Christ. There may be other seasons that God's saying, no, I'm not going to use you. I'm not using Robin today, but I'm going to use Jeremy. The issue is a a leading and and a listening to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is witnessed through this brotherly love. But more than that, there's something else unique about that. In Deuteronomy 15.4, it tells us something about this early church gathering. In Deuteronomy 15.4, it says this, But there will be no more power among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. Speaking of the promised land, what they were told was that there would be no more poor among them. See, the church is to be a place that is representing and foreshadowing what is to come when Christ returns. A place of unity, a place of togetherness, all bound in Christ. A place where there is no poor, but there is a selfless surrender to Christ. See, the church is actually to be that glimpse of what is to come. Now, we know that in Acts, that the church was not always faithfully living this way. Because the church is comprised of imperfect people. But that's not an excuse, because what we have is we have the Holy Spirit. And what God desires from us is a surrender to Jesus Christ of all of ourselves, so that if God were to call us to give up everything, we would. So that when there is a a group, the gathering together, that there are no poor among the gathering in terms of going without food or shelter. And that as the world sees this, that the glory of God is being declared, and as believers are living in it, it only creates in them a greater anticipation for what is to come when Christ returns. The third 
way the Holy Spirit's presence is witnessed is through the unity and hospitality with believers. Unity and hospitality with believers. Now, their unity was not only in Christ, but it was also in their growth. It says here in Acts 2 that they were attending the temple together. The, the word there for attending is actually the same word that was used for devotion, proskatero. The idea here is not simply just an attending. The idea here is there was a commitment of one mind. There was a unity of mind and purpose. One of the most bizarre things when you think about that is is that in Christ's church, what happens through the work of the Spirit is God gives us each the same purpose. And we become unified in purpose. And through that unity... The Spirit's presence is seen and known. It's witnessed. How do you get a hundred people to agree on anything? It's only in Christ. It's only in Christ. And so there was a unity of purpose where they would attend the temple together. They would go together. They were persevering in one mind. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this unity is not a made-up just, I'm going to go by and I'm never going to deal with anything. The reality is this peace comes, and we know from Scripture that peace comes from being a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. God has called us to be a peacemaker, which means that we are required to speak the truth in love. It isn't to be something that we just pass over and hope to pacify, because we know that when we're simply peacekeepers, that peace doesn't last very long. It's only as good as the next conflict arises. Verse 11 through 14 goes on, and it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Stephen Cole points out, he says, while we should gather with the whole church for worship and teaching, we only enjoy deep fellowship with those we get to know personally. So this unity moves from this aspect of being unity informed with one mind, and that then leads to the breaking of bread in homes What it's speaking of is this worshipful kind of festive meal of coming together where you're centering your fellowship, your hospitality around Christ. And so we see the presence of the Holy Spirit at work through the unity and hospitality. The unity and hospitality towards believers. See, hospitality is actually the welcoming of others to share in our homes. It's not to be based upon some grand idea of having the perfect place or even the perfect meal. One person puts it this way. It says it can be practiced over McDonald's coffee or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or no food at all. It can happen in an untidy house or at the neighborhood pool. Whenever we invite someone into our life for the good of her body and soul, we practice hospitality. Hospitality is more than entertaining. It's much more. Here's the thing. When the body of Christ practices hospitality, they're initiating relationship with one another. They're communicating love with one another. 
It is the very essence of what Jesus does with us. Why does God call us to be the initiator of relationships? Because Jesus is the initiator of relationships. He's the one that draws us into salvation. He's the one that encounters us. He's the one that regenerates our heart. And so when we initiate, we are actually communicating the love of Christ to others. When we stand off and say, well, it's up to them to come to me, guess what? We've actually rejected the very means in which Jesus uses to engage his people. It's the very basic form of God's love being displayed. See, even in our hospitality, the gospel is being proclaimed. Even in our hospitality, Jesus is being seen. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate initiator of relationship. And he's welcomed us into his home. And more importantly, he's welcomed us into his kingdom. And more important than that, he's guaranteed that inheritance of the kingdom. It doesn't go away, but through the power of the Spirit, he's guaranteed that inheritance, that place. The fourth way that we see the presence of the Holy Spirit at work. It says here at the end of 46... That those that had gone into the homes where they were breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There was a humble joy. A humble joy. This word generous in Greek is actually a word that means simplicity. It's the opposite of worldliness. The idea here is that those who were receiving the hospitality did not look upon the, the, the situation with judgment, but looked upon it with humility, with the same The idea was whether they had been received into a wealthy home or whether they had been received into a poor home, it didn't matter because the issue was not about the things of the worldliness, but rather it was about humility, seeing the person as same. I'm not a real wedding show kind of guy, but as you get to know Elisa, she likes wedding shows. So by de facto, that means that I occasionally see wedding shows as much as I try to get away from them. One of those wedding shows, which is quite amazing to me, is I don't even remember the name of it, but it has, it has four weddings, and these people go and they evaluate each other's weddings, and they rate them, right? They go in and they rate each other's weddings, and whoever, whoever comes up with the highest rating gets a free trip, right? Now, I don't know about you guys, but one, the concept is totally flawed because people who are having the weddings are then judging the other people's weddings, but never mind that. It makes a t- good TV, I guess, um, I don't watch it, so I don't really care. But the, the, the truth is, is that what he's saying here is, I don't want you to be like those other people who are judging each wedding by its goodness, by its, what you think and by your own expectation. What I want you to see is that they're the same as you in Christ and that you're to walk in it not according to the world's standards but towards God's standards. Was it... Their heart right in having you come over was their heart right in inviting you. It doesn't really matter what their house looked like. And it really didn't even matter what they offered you for food. But that we received it with humble joy. And it was in that humble joy where there was no evaluation of it that the witness, the the power of the Spirit was seen. Think about this. If you were invited to somebody's house, they looked at you and they told you that you were going to have dinner. They turned to you and they offered you a bowl of almonds and said, there's your dinner. But it was all they could afford. What would your heart be? Would there be a humble joy? 
a willingness to praise God and see the joy in what they had to offer? Or would it be disappointment because your stomach's still growling and you're going to have to go to McDonald's afterwards? What's it received with? See, in our humble joy, we actually reflect the glory of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit is seen. So, what's the redeeming truth of this entire passage? The redeeming truth of this passage we see it says there that after they had received those meals, they praised God and had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Witnessing the active work of the Holy Spirit in Christ's church moves us to praise God and reveals His glory to the world, plain and simple. Witnessing the active work of the Holy Spirit in Christ's church moves us to praise God and reveals His glory to the world, plain and simple. When churches move away from the four principles that God has laid out here, from the apostles' teaching or the Word of God, when they move away from a commitment to the body, a partnering together, when they move away from worship that's focused on Christ, and they move away from praying, that gathering is destined to die. More importantly, when a church is struggling, that we need to understand that this doesn't seem like that's all that attractional to people in our culture today, but God's saying, listen, I'm the one who grows my church. Do this, and I will grow you, and there are going to be people whose lives are changed. And what else he's saying is, guess what? When things get rough and you look around and the church gets smaller, don't run from it saying, oh my gosh, something's wrong, nothing's happening here. But look, is it committed to those things? And if it is, hold firm and walk together. Knowing that the Holy Spirit is still at work, His presence is still going to be known, and lives are still going to be changed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you that we can worship you this morning. We thank you that we can look at your word together and see what your plan is for the gathering of believers. Father, may we not be a church that moves away from your principles, from your, your, the very things that you've given so that you might grow your church. But God, may we always be committed to your truth. Father, may we not neglect the power of your Spirit and the presence of your Spirit. May we not run our own way, our own direction, and the knowledge that we have, but God, may we seek you and your knowledge and wisdom. And Father, may be your presence who is seen through our lives as we faithfully submit to you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we...